Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Today's guest is Nick Chromdes, co-founder and CEO of Hunt Club, a tech-enabled talent and recruitment company placing leadership roles across the fastest growing companies in the tech sector. They've helped over a thousand high growth companies land incredible leaders, helping many of them scale their business from seed funding to unicorn status in a matter of years. Prior to Hunt Club, he founded New Coast Ventures, a venture studio that started and invested over 40 early stage companies, companies like GoPuff, Compass, and a million more. Nick, excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. This is going to be fun. Thanks for having me, Alex, and it's, it's fun to be with you and see you. This is going to be cool. So where I'd like to get started is, so you actually, right before we hopped on, you were saying how this was actually a lifestyle business, and then you transitioned into this venture capital business, and you've raised $54 million to date. Let's go back a little bit early in the story. Like, Let's talk about when you were actually transitioning out of founder-led sales. And so yeah. you had something, obviously you knew, you knew that there was something there, but at what point in time did you kind of figure out, hey, it's actually time for me to kind of get out of the way and let, you know, let sellers actually do their thing with me not being involved every single minute. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it really started probably in 2000. So if we founded the business in roughly end of 2015, really around 2016, 17. So end of 16, early 17, when we first started to think about like, how do we build a bit of a different go to market model versus me talking to tons of customers and being sort of the front line of most of those interactions. And most of it was just predicated on like really wanting to grow and knowing that couldn't sort of be everywhere at once. And then also, you know, believing that, that we could start doubling and tripling down in a little bit of a different model to help accelerate that. And then also spend my time doing a number of different things. And so I think, you know, I'm still very commercially focused even today and on a lot of customer calls, but, but, but it really was like the tipping point of I'm doing, you know, executing on search, using our software, technology networks, playing product manager, you know, playing a bit of head of finance, raising capital and on the front end of sales. And, and, you know, we didn't have a marketing function at all at the time. And so I was occasionally throwing up a LinkedIn post <laughs> and it sort of just got to that tipping point where it's like, okay, if we really want to grow the business and, and go for a run at something, we should invest and start testing different go-to-market models. And it was probably around, around the sort of million-ish revenue run rate mark. So what did, what was the initial go to market? Was it just you leveraging your network? Was it like an outbound motion through like connections? Obviously the, the foundation of the business linked in to find other people type of thing. Yeah, it was, it was all relationship driven. And so you think about like the beautiful thing about like the business that we're in. So we're search firm 2.0, we use all our own technology and networks to power referrals, to help our clients get better talent. And so really most of the way that we driven or driven more business then, and even today in some ways, even though we've codified different motions to it now is through network effects and relationships. And so really delivering a great experience for our customers, venture funds take notice. They have more portfolios than just the one company you just worked with. And that allows you to sort of expand that way. And so we've, we've always kind of focused on the quality of experience and then really partnering close with a lot of venture and growth equity and private equity funds as distribution channels. Cause if it works really well for one, they want to make sure that you're helping other companies like the ones you just work with. That makes a lot of sense. Your obviously network is a part of your company in and of in and of itself, 
but then you're actually leveraging the network of venture and mm -hmm. startups and the various startup communities to build that awareness and the virality that way. Totally. And I think really it's sort of a version of product marketing, I should say like service marketing or community marketing, but really making sure that we did some of the intangibles a bit differently than a lot of traditional recruiting firms. So training people to provide a great experience, breaking up with candidates with direct impactful feedback to help them better them in the experience, you know, having hard discussions from a consultative matter with clients, like doing all those intangibles in an actual experience. So, you know, when a VP of sales, a candidate who didn't get the job goes and gets a CRO job, they kind of remember, wait, this was actually a net positive experience in a world where sometimes it's complex to find one. And so a lot of that created a lot of natural sort of inbound for the business over the years of growing. That makes a lot of sense. So when that's interesting because not only are you every single conversation that you ever have with any candidate, whether it's a fit for one company, it could be a fit for another company. It could be a fit for today, six months from now, two years from now, you're obviously collecting all that information. Who, which one comes first? Is it you go to the company and say, Hey, are you looking to hire some people? Or are you saying, Hey, let's just continue the like candidate sourcing pool of, of great people. Yeah. So. Ideally, both. As you grow a business, you can only prioritize, you know, your time in, in certain ways. And so we we spend a lot of time, and we've been fortunate in this way, where we've always had a solid amount of demand to grow the business. So we've had to spend a lot of time really nurturing those client relationships, make sure those customers had a great experience, we're servicing them properly. And so most of our candidate pipelining has been focused on a specific search or a specific engagement. But suffice to say, like, it doesn't mean that we haven't gone out and yeah. built pipelines or networks in certain parts of the market or certain functions, but, uh, but our, our whole take is like, let's service our customers, but make sure our, our candidates have a great experience throughout that process. So they think about coming back to us. And when they do come to us, even when we don't have something that might be a great fit for them, what can we do to unlock our network in a wide variety of ways, whether it's introductions to talent partners at large funds or or helping them think through the market or coaching them and advising another offers, really playing ad value in that way. That's interesting. So when you were doing this, I mean, you, you have a, a good network here in Chicago. Like, I mean, you, you know, the ins and outs, you started a venture studio yourself, you've been in investing. So that gave you a kind of a, a good jump. You're the founder and the CEO. When you talk, you hear the vision, you hear the passion, you, you know, you're able to answer all these questions. What did it look like to begin to hire someone to kind of take over sales for you to be able to communicate that and translate that? And I don't know if there's like you figured out osmosis or something, but like what 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 did what does a, a head of sales look like for you guys considering this is what you do all day? Yeah. Yeah. So I think we've had different iterations of it as we've scaled the different team sizes and as we've raised different rounds of financing. But in the early days, it was really what we thought the best model would be a bit of apprenticeship. And so what we believe in is that relationship based motions, even though we have differentiation, you're still selling to an executive in a seat. And so they still need to have credibly, you know, a peer or someone that can communicate like a peer really interact with them to have credibility in them wanting to purchase. And so we really optimize for, you know, really great relationship based seller who was actually a partner in the, at new coast at the time. Nice. And Jeff to come over and, and join us and kind of take the first job where we built a four to five person team. And, you know, for, for us, the first six months, we were just selling together. He was on every call. I was on every other call. 
We were learning the different nuances of the pitch. We were learning how to thread, connecting with somebody and building trust while really sharing our differentiation. And then once I felt like he really understood it, he started to build his own team. I think going back to like the bootstrap to financing a business, you know, the first two or three years of that journey, we didn't have like a heavy hand telling us we had to grow 100% year over year. Otherwise, we run out of money. We ran the business profitably for, you know, really five out of seven years, six out of seven years of the business. And so it was always about building the right motion without the external pressure of trying to grow at a rate and figure something out that maybe takes more time and osmosis to absorb versus, yeah. versus figure this out in a quarter. I think you, you you slipped a word in there really easily, but I want to I want to highlight is trust, and I think that's one of the things that I see the most is the ones that the ones that work and the ones that don't from a transitioning out of founder led sales and having a, a, a true sales leader is is trust. How how have how have you been kind of been able to maintain that? Obviously, your sales leadership has evolved, your sales org has evolved, but like. Is, is it really just as simple as, hey, we, we were selling together, we were in the trenches together, and that's how you built your trust? No, never is. You know, <laughs> I think that's how we started. But I think like any founder, right, you, and I've grown a lot, I believe, and hopefully Jeff, who's still with us, is incredible, would say the same, where it's, you know, it's in the early days, like, you're competitive, you want to win, you see an opportunity to win every deal or everything that's in front of you. You don't always logically connect the dots why things don't happen because you're starting to let go. And so I actually had to, I think, change a lot through that evolution where I had to learn how to allow people to make mistakes, allow people to find their authentic voice in the sales process, allow people to try different motions that maybe would be super effective if I were running them, but but less effective if someone else and really let them find their own journey. And, and that was like actually a really hard transition for me because of personal pressures to grow the business. But I think over time, what you realize is like, you have to try and build some systemic playbook that isn't you. If you ever want to build something that's, you know, bigger than yourself and, and the team's done an awesome job and Jeff did an awesome job of like figuring out those cornerstones that would really help us work in the early days. Yeah. Did you have, one of the, one of the things that I see a lot with my, my customers is always this question around, well, well how do you, set KPIs? Like, how do you set goals for somebody when, you know, you've been doing it and they're, they're clearly not as good as you are. They're, you know, they're not up to the, you know, they're not, they're not Nick today. The expectation is they obviously get better now, damn it. Well, you know, of course they're better now, but, but when you think about it at that point, like you have goals, right? You can do all the spreadsheet math that you want to say, Hey, they should do this or close rates or that type of thing. But like, how did you think about like, setting of goals and setting of KPIs and all of this. I mean, you are, you're really transitioning the business into a, a different phase. That's really scary, but I know you well enough that you're a numbers driven guy. Like how, how does, how do you actually get that to all work together? I should say, how far were you off? <laughs> yeah, pretty far. But I think like there's two frameworks you can use that I've seen at least be somewhat successful if you're a commercially driven CEO or founder. So like you sort of model out what you think you might be able to do if you had spent 100% of your time on it and then discount it appropriately. So like I kind of had that framework where I knew if I'd spent 100% of time, my time on customer interactions and sales, like I felt I could achieve a certain number. And then I put a discount on that just given the title, the insights, the knowledge, the relationships would be quite different. And then the second is like then approaching it a bit from an ROI model, right? Where, you know, sometimes and if you don't have true 
if you have somewhat of a product market fit, but you don't have like a scalable go to market motion, you know, I think also giving yourself a little bit of patience, knowing that as long as like the return on that investment achieves a certain profile, like it is working, but it flows back to the business the right way. You just have to think about then optimizing that. And so when, as we started investing in our own go to market motion and like adding our, ver our version of reps, which are called GMs, you know, we just had to have a clear thesis that the probability of them not returning back capital invested was super low, which gave us the comfort that we could invest, you know, a bit more aggressively and, and test and learn and be patient on, on what the right model is. And I think that's like predicated a bit on the strength of the business model in our industry that we're in. It's sometimes harder to do that in yeah. you know, something that has an ACV of 5,000 or 10,000 and, and, you know, sales cycle three to six months. And like, you kind of have to get to, you have to hire, you know, probably lower comp reps. You have to get to ramp faster. You have to achieve quota and be a little bit more targeted. Otherwise there's a high probability of tipping under. That's how we did it. I, I basically discounted what I think I could do and gave myself a little bit of peace knowing that as long as they achieve this threshold, it was a reasonable investment to at least learn. Yeah. What's the discount? Is it like 20%, like a convertible note type of thing? Or is it 50%? I mean, maybe, maybe more of a range, obviously you, cause, cause you could have, you know, you can hire yep. a senior person versus a junior person and yeah. that that'll obviously have a huge weight on, on the discount itself. But when you think about it, like what was the discount itself, mainly just for the audience to be able to kind of have like a, a benchmark? Yeah. It was anywhere between like 20 to 60%, depending on the, the archetype yeah. of rep. Yeah. Okay. And then as far as kind of, you talked about like, is it working or not? And and I think patience is a, is a key there, but also when you come into play, when pay, like patience equals money, right? Like that, that costs money, whether it's two months or six months or eight months or whatever it is that costs money. And so how did you know, like, what were your levers that you were using to gauge if this was working, knowing that it was a patience game? Is it like, number of meetings that are booked is mm -hmm. it number of qualified opportunities that are put into the pipeline number of deals that are closed because you have you know short-ish sales cycles mm -hmm. yeah in the early days it was really even more straightforward and simpler it was you know it really gave folks like sort of an idea of looking at ramp time and ramp to us meant first deal closed like did that take four weeks did it take 12 weeks did it take 24 weeks and then over the course of a six month period, like what percentage of deals were actually originated by a GM or a rep versus handed through some sort of inbound referral or motion. And there were some pretty good leading indicators, I think in the early days of the business that if like you looked at a cohorts in six months periods, like if they were able to originate a couple things on their own, understand what that motion felt like, close a certain percentage of that, which was handed off, like there'd be a, a high probability of them having some success in our model. And so, Think of it as like basically time to first deal, close rate for inbound, and looking at origination of their own opportunities versus those that were handed. That's huge. Okay. That makes that's well when you look at it and you look back now, would you do anything different? Or would you go with those yeah. would you go with the same way that you think about it? You know what's funny is we we actually started with that motion like relationship based selling profiles and archetypes of those that like had a really diverse background. Like some of them haven't even come from sales. They've come from BD. They've come from account management. They've come from partnerships. They've been general managers in businesses, even though they're commercially oriented, they haven't sold. And so we tested a lot of different profiles and still are, but we made this funny turn where we had this idea of like relationship-based sales in the beginning. And then 
like got caught up with like the scalability bug and like tried a totally different motion for a while under different yeah. leadership and it just didn't work at all. And so that was like the impatient side of me of like wanting to find growth faster and then quickly reverted back to the motion that we was working, just taking some time. And now we've doubled and tripled down on that playbook and, and it, it works nicely it when it, when it works. That makes sense. Okay. So then at what point in time did you and Jeff, so you and Jeff are doing this, you mm -hmm. transition to him, he's kind of running the show. And then he said, okay, it's time for you to start to build your own team. Yeah. Two big things that come to that. One is the person that you transition to, if they were a rep, to be a manager is a totally different skill set. Yeah. So how, how did you know that? And then how did you know how to hire people? Like, which people were you hiring? That type of thing. Was it like an SDRAE type model? Was it a full cycle model? Was it somebody with tons of experience? Yep. Yeah. So on the first question, like transition time, you know, it was interesting. Like he had the humility and kind of self-confidence to know what he loved to do and know what he didn't love to do. And like, as his team grew from, you know, call it one or two GMs to five, six, he's just at a point where he really enjoyed being closer to the customer and closer to customer interaction. So he kind of decided that's what he loved to do and wanted to go focus on that. And so huge kudos to him because it's like, it's pretty rare to see that in startups where a leader is self-aware enough to know what they love to do and what they're not necessarily drawing energy out of. And, and so we've been fortunate to have that in a bunch of spots at Hunt Club where people that have been running functions have taken like interesting, you know, IC roles that they're having a ton of fun and drawing a ton of energy from. And so, so that was like really him. He had hit his core numbers for probably five or six quarters in a row and just realized it wasn't what he loved to do. And so then we transitioned That's amazing. to, yeah, and, and all kudos and props to him for it because it's very rare. And so we'd sort of realized we needed to transition to a bit as we grew from kind of call it like five or six GMs to thinking about building both success under, under the revenue org, as well as go to market or at least our sales org and some partnerships and alliances, even though it's a smaller function here, we wanted more of a systems thinker, but also one that also still was able to drive some customer energy. And we were fortunate to find, find a leader there. And so really the, the key requirements in our scorecard, given our business was someone that was deeply relationship oriented. So has a, has a track record, either in an enterprise motion or in a really sort of relationship based sale, someone that knows how to like crank the gears and understand how to operationalize a business. So can put some numbers and metrics behind how they think about things. And then, and then someone that's been through different growth curves and knows how to sort of figure out where to go when there isn't much of a map. And we're really lucky to find a great leader there too, to help us kind of in the next wave of growth. And, you know, has, has been enough situations where they've built a nascent go-to-market from scratch to scale the 50 to 70 person org that they've seen both sides and have been really helpful in us figuring it out. How much have you been in, how much have you had to stay in sales? like to be able to actually make that transition. So first he comes in, starts to build out a team. You guys are hitting some numbers, says, Hey, I'm ready to go back to being an IC, which you almost never hear. And it's a, a great signal to, to everybody out there that management is not for everybody. And just because like, that's the, the supposed to be, or some corporate textbook says, this is the way there are plenty of people making plenty of money, happy as they can possibly be in the IC role. But like, how, how much are you involved in every, all of this that's happening on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I think it was interesting. So in our business, given that in the early days, 
So go back to like when Hunt Club first started in 2015, I was actually running a lot of searches. So, you know, I've probably executed personally over a couple hundred searches and I do way less now. I probably do three or four years just to stay closer to our process and technology and systems and team, but was running a lot in the early days, right? So candidate relationships, customer relationships, fun relationships, being a bit of the nucleus to, to a lot of the relationships that have been flowing in our business in the early days. When there was a need in market that came inbound, a lot of times it would, it would come to me. And I don't think that's too dissimilar from most sort of founder-led companies where you know, in the early days, being in market and telling the story really is the brand before they really figure out differentiation and productizing growth. And so, so flash forward during that transition, I would get inbound and I would send it to our team. And if it was a certain customer or a certain relationship, I would join the first interaction. And if it required escalation, I would try and help to get something over the finish line or in the middle of the process. But really the team was driving a lot of it aside from me being on the first touch. And I think a lot of that's true now too, where, where as we've continued to grow, you know, it's, I love, I love working with customers. Like I love, I think the job's like one of the, the job I have is like one of the coolest jobs in the world. Cause all day, every day, I talk to founders and CEOs about like how to solve the Rubik's Cube, which is their business, and like put it together to make it work. And when it works, like it can change a ton of different lives. And so I hate not being in, like involved in those discussions. Like it kills me not to like listen and hear and try and help. So I'm learning how to back off. But, but I'd say even now, like it's less and less and the team is doing a great job driving. And I try and play tip of the spear where I can. But you know, that's most of the time, the extent of, of the interaction, unless there's an escalation or something's needed. Yep. That makes sense. So let's, let's, let's change subjects a little bit and talk about kind of overall alignment with the team. Cause so you got your sales team, you're focusing on obviously looking for companies who are, who are, are needing candidates. You're looking for candidates who are looking for a new gig. And that is the, obviously the, the heart and soul of this. When you think about marketing, you think about customer success, you think about operations like how do you get everybody on the same page, especially as you're really starting to kind of make the transition where you're not really leading any one specific function and you're taking the business to the next level? Like, how do you make it so the whole thing doesn't crumble? Like, yeah. what, what, how are you focusing? I think it's, you can't do everything perfectly or well, right? Every function's at a different stage of maturity in their career or maturity in the business. And this is an example, I got, you know, Hunk Club has not had marketing until about a year ago, year and a half ago. And so marketing and Hunk Club is still like a pretty nascent function for the most part, right? And so, whereas like figuring out sort of our go-to-market sales motion or our direct sales motion has been a part of the business for five years, six years with all sorts of obviously anecdotes and experience notes from, from me driving a bit of it in the early days. And so for us, I think it's really about like recognizing where our functions are in their maturity curve, where they are in their own stage of like function market fit and hiring really good leaders who are great at kind of cross-functionally collaborating and making sure that we're all kind of seeing the music the same way. And so we've done a really, I think the team's done a really good job of like simplifying every single year over year. So if you look at the last three years, we rolled out a, an OKR system about three years ago, started off with like 30 metrics, like every company, next year's 20, next year's 10, and like continuing to refine that down to the things that are most important for the business. And then making sure our cross-functional leaders like align to that, or even if they disagree, they align to it and then work closely with the rest of the team to operationalize that and then cascade their team's metrics down into it. And so that's been a really helpful exercise for us. It's just like simplifying it. Cause like three years ago, it was bad. 
like there's 4,000 things we would look at and yeah. everyone had a different metric that they cared about. And now when there's 10, like our go to market function probably carries four to five of them. So it's really clear what we're doing now. And I think that's helped drive a ton of alignment. So you pretty much have had the same go to market motion up until, I mean, you had marketing about a year, year and a half ago. So you had the same direct go to market, leverage partners with venture firms and studios, but it hasn't changed drastically all that much. I mean, you just grow, have a little bit of patience, grow some more, you get a couple of good partners. Obviously, with the more matches that you make, you actually have a couple of reality loops actually built into your business where it's like if somebody goes and works someplace for three, four, five years, maybe they want to go eventually do something else and they come back to you. Company wants to hire more, so then you can have some liquidity with, with each and every single one of those. You have your customer testimonials and that type of thing. But it, am I thinking about this right? Where like your go-to-market is really much just like go do the right thing, find the customers in the beginning, and then you have your team kind of on the back end to be able to just like not mess it up. <laughs> Most somewhat. So there's, there's a nuance here that's an important one. So our business, like our operating model for our clients who engage us, our customers engage us in search, is we use a network of thousands to refer on our customers' behalf. And so the that network's actually incentivized both through social capital to help their network, find a great job, feels great, they love it, they're already doing this all the time. But also financial capital, where they get $100 to $500 for any referral like it's an interview and two to $10,000 for any referral like it's a role. And so what we've kind of naturally baked into our business that's a little bit different from an inbound model than what a lot of other companies have is like, of our 20,000 plus experts that have joined our community now, 17,000 of them are prospective customers. And so we've got a little bit of this like, flywheel effect that we're really building and starting to codify a little bit more mechanically or systematically versus just a halo effect. Whereas someone refers somebody for a job, they get the job, like all of a sudden they have the eureka moment, like, wait, I'm hiring, I should use Hunt Club too. Uh -huh. And so, so that's a huge part of where we think about investing is like, how do we make sure our service is as good as possible? How do we make sure the technology powers in a way it's differentiated, create outsized value? And then those that participate in the ecosystem, whether it's our customers, our candidates, or our experts in our community, continue to see us showing up in a wide variety of different ways and interacting in a wide variety of different ways. So they think of us when they have a need. And that's a huge part of how we will grow. And it's not too dissimilar than what the traditional recruiting firm might do. When a traditional really good executive search wins, you know, one of our board members used to work for Steve Jobs and would do like all of his executive searches. And so when he'd get an Apple job, you know, he would call the entire market because if you're doing the CFO for Apple, you want to know every great CFO you're in, in market that you're working on that search, right? right? And that right there in itself is a business development tactic as well as it is a, you know, just generally good exercise for mapping the market for talent. And so we have the same thing just using digital techniques where our experts see our job board, they make referrals all the time and, and naturally think of us as they have opportunities. Multi-pronged approach. Try. You get to do biz dev and you get to do sales all at the same time. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the, it's the nature too, right? Like you do a really nice job, like serving your candidates and serving your clients. The NPS in this industry isn't you know, jumping out the roof. And so you add another layer of that where you have a community actually introducing their network and helping, you know, people, people love that. Yeah.
When you think about your growth, one of the, I mean, we, we come from much of the same cloth where when you're, when you're building your startup, a lot of this is to be niched as you possibly can and then and start to, to kind of widen that approach from there. How much of your, has your niche kind of opened up? I mean, did you start with specifically like, hey, I'm going to hire, you know, sales function or executive functions and then go into different departments or to different levels? Like, how how is your go to market and obviously your traction and growth like changed over time from those early days to to today? Yeah, so in the early days we were actually broad. Our primary segment was venture backed, growth equity backed companies, um, which is hilarious because our like second our first customer was actually a really large private equity backed business <laughs> that like was in the collections industry. Um, oh, even better! So, awesome. Like totally away from our ICP. Yeah, but you know the next fifty customers were tighter to that. Um, and so actually like going back to the regrets question, like the one regret, I, I don't have a lot of regrets in building this business, the decisions you've made. The one regret I actually do think I have is like not getting like super narrow on the function that we serviced in the early days. So like we only do marketing, like Hunt Club only does marketing or Hunt Club only does sales. We had a lot of demand from like providing a good experience and we were proving in the early days that we could service a lot of different functions well given that we were getting referrals from an expert network, those experts could be from a wide variety of functions. So if we had the supply side, we could service the demand side. But as you grow, you lose some of that domain expertise on the consulting side and the service side. And so we've invested a lot the last four years to basically organize our business against functional domains. So they have deep expertise in certain areas and they have access to the same network. But it wasn't that way in the beginning. So that would be the one thing I wish we had changed where yeah. you know, we had really gone deeper and function in the early days. So let's let's unpack that a little bit because that's interesting. So you were actually quite broad and now you're getting to the point where you have started to make silos or departments of your company where it's like th these people are focused on sales, these people are focused on finance and so on. Mm -hmm. Do you have it so that it's executives versus, you know, individual contributors versus like mid-level managers as well? Yeah, yeah, so we slice it by function, we slice a little bit by industry. And then we slice it by seniority. So the level of service and level of sort of peer to peer consultation required for an exec search relative to, you know, potentially an account executive or a director of marketing or marketing manager is quite a bit different. So we, we bifurcate those two businesses. That makes sense. I, I imagine that that actually changes the profile of the people that you hire internally. Obviously, you get to eat your own dog food, but then it's like, okay, this relationship or this person has relationships with C-level executives versus, hey, this person has relationships with ICs or something like that. Totally. Yeah. And I think it gives an interesting growth curve where you can grow with your candidate pool too, right? We've got an amazing guy that started with us when he was 23 years old. You know, he's been with us probably six years, five years now. He's 28. His friends moved from like entry-level jobs yeah. to like manager level to maybe senior manager, now director. And his candidate pool has evolved with that too, right? And so, so I think you can grow in a lot of different ways in this business. When we think about from hiring from outside, the key is getting the right level of service profile to make sure that it's matching the customer's yeah. expectations. That makes sense. This, this kind of evolving of essentially territories, go to market, that type of thing. How long has this taken you? Yeah, it's still, it's still a work in progress because we it the business is really complex in the sense of and it's not that complex, but it's complex in the sense of like if you cut it by territory, you know, it's very relationship driven and you may have this amazing relationship at 
Bain Capital. And Bain Capital's private equity portfolio is expansive, not just across the US, but across the world. And do you really want to take that inbound or that lead or that opportunity and surface it to somebody who doesn't have the same level of relationship? It creates a disconnect in like communicating upwards. It creates a disconnect in like all sorts of things, right? So I think we're still really much figuring that journey out and like what is the right way to slice and dice the market so that that we're taking advantage of the effect that there's, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of com yeah. companies never used Hunkel before, but also making sure we're leaning into what we think is the most important thing, which is a relationship. So we're, we're in the process yeah. of kind of slicing that down, but yeah. there's still work in progress. That's interesting. Cause I mean, we could get, we could go actually all the way back to the earlier days to say, I would imagine that you had one of the harder decisions to say is, is what do we say no to? Mm -hmm. Because you could technically say yes to everything. And then, you know, pray that you can figure it out on the other end and you know you work your tail off type of thing but like you were you were pretty broad and now you know you're you know you have the money you have a bigger team those types of things so you can start to to get to a point where you have different people that specialize but how have you figured out like what do you get to say yes to or what what you should say yes to and then so many things of what you say no to because that could that alone could could really really hit the hit the business hard from attraction and growth perspective yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there are certain like sizings around fee structures that we look at. So, it has to hit a certain criteria, certain criteria and type of company has to be certain thing in a scorecard for it to be a qualified lead that we consider absorbing as a client. And then, and then also, you know, it really has to to be you know a certain level of seniority within the organization as well. And then we have to also have like a high conviction that we can deliver a high quality service and experience for them, right? So, at the end of the day, recruiting is equal part sales and marketing. If our team is meant to be the front line of a, somebody else's brand, we just have to have conviction that we can represent them in a way that they deserve. And, and in some instances, that's not us. In some instances, it definitely is us. And so I think we really look at all those things. We look at a company's intent to partner. We look at sort of the scorecard and the lead on like, have they used search before? Do they understand the differentiation? And then we put some qualifiers in our business model too, where there is a upfront charge versus just a traditional contingent firm. And yeah. that usually drives good buy-in and alignment as well. But yeah, it's, it was really hard. Like in the early days, and then you get the great customer who you've worked with for like 17 searches that are like right up your alley. And they say, hey, we need, we trust you. We love you. We know you, you know, you need to go do an executive assistant search for us. And you've never done it before. And like, and like, that's a real story. Like our largest customer who we worked on over probably 150 searches for, you know, called me personally and said, you need to do a confidential executive search and it has to be you because you're the only one we trust. And like they were raising billions of dollars of capital. Their previous EA had a tons of information about the business and just like, it's a very sensitive thing. Right. And it's all great now, but like, but those are the types of things you can't really say no to that. So you have to figure some of that out in certain areas. That's interesting. I would imagine that you've had your your fair share of dog fights as far as competitive, you know, presenting and going against a lot of, you know, old school executive search firms, a lot of other the recruiters who maybe are local or know the area a lot better. Can, can you share a story of just you, you had kind of a dog fight and you ultimately came out as a, as a winner on the other side? Like, what what was the learning moment that you had that you kind of figured out like, hey, we can sell, like we can compete with the big dogs. Yeah. We had this great search in the early days where, you know, in the early days, 
executive search was a couple of percentage points of our business. It was mostly professional search, but there was a client that wanted to use us for um, an exec search for a large public company. And we hadn't done public company exec searches yet, but they, they really looking for like a differentiated leader. We'd worked with the dollar saves and the Pinterest and these like 2.0 companies and they were looking for that type of talent. And so they, they really weren't that excited about engaging with a traditional provider because they didn't feel like they understand, understood the talent pool as well. And so they came to us, you know, it was against every large public and private exec search firm. There was a bake-off. You know, we really came in with knowledge in the market, with differentiation and how we showed we use our software to automate parts of the process that take them four weeks we could do in minutes and things like that. And so we sort of walked away with a deeper understanding, I think, what the, what the market is really looking for or what they were looking for in the market, a differentiated way to access that talent and gave them conviction that, that we might be the right partner. And so, you know, I think it was, it was fun because it was like four or five rounds, had to meet board members, like... <laughs> all those different things, but ultimately we were able to win it, deliver in it in 65, 70 days, which was, you know, 50% faster than like the next incumbent who presented and, and the, the hire still there today and she's doing an amazing job and the market caps tripled. And, and so it's like, those are the really fun stories that I'll carry always in the business. Those are awesome. That's a, that's a really good feel good story. I mean, that's one of the best things that I love about the business is you get to literally every time you win, obviously a client that that's paying you is very happy, but you're essentially getting somebody a job. Like you're getting them a job. And then in this case, she's flourishing huge market cap win. that that's awesome. Yeah. It's also so let me go the stuff. other way on it. Let's go the other way and say, is there, is there a, a time where, you know, good customer, right profile, think you're going to win it. And like, Why'd you lose? Yeah, all the time. Usually it's embedded relationships and uh, we're new, you know, yeah. we don't buy a tier two or tier three consulting brand because hiring McKinsey, Bain or BCG will never get you fired. And right. so, so I think let's just, just go analogy. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Like, and we, we have the same thing. Like people, you look at 98% of our industry, like most of it is old school Rolodex, partner that's been in, in the business for 20, 30 years, no differentiation on approach, deep embedded relationships. And, and I think when you're going against that in market, right, there's a lot of inertia against you. And so, so when we lose, the answer is always like, we love what you're doing. It's totally different. We see how this could be incredible, but we've known Susan for 10 years. She did our last two searches. Our board's more comfortable or have to be we love what you're doing, but like, we can't test something on you. Like, even though you have great customer references or, or great outcomes with people we trust. And so I think that's usually the, those are the big two things, right? Like people, people have to be comfortable with change. Change eventually takes foot, but in the early days when you're going up market and you are differentiated, like it takes a while. Yeah. Now that it's some of those that it's doesn't matter how good it looks, no matter how good your pitch is, you can't overcome relationships. Like you can't overcome some of those things, no matter no matter how they, they have to be convinced internally to themselves that there's going to be a better solution and they're open to it. Otherwise you're walking in without a chance. A million percent. And you think about yeah. most, you know, corporate jobs, there are elements of politics and self-preservation and things of that nature. Right. And, and you really have to believe or like really want to try something different if you're at a large enough company in the early days to give Hunt Club a go. And like, for those that did like, forever grateful for them and for those who didn't i totally get it i don't know if i would in their seat as well like yeah. i hope i would but 
but it, it it doesn't not make sense. It makes total sense. But our hope is like through brand awareness, through great service and delivery for our customers, through continuing to innovate in ways that no one else has or will, you kind of switch, you shift from this parameter of being different to being kind of the only thing. And like one of our lead investors actually was a CFO and CEO of Airbnb for, for two or three years. He ran Blackstone for like 10 years as their CFO. And like, he gave the analogy of kind of what we're doing as like, you know, in the early days in Airbnb, like it took a unique individual to want to sleep on some stranger's couch. Right. Like, and then flash forward 10 years later, yeah. like everybody, does I it. take my family on every family trip and we rent an Airbnb, we rent someone else's house and like yeah. no more hotels. And so I, you know, I think at a certain point, like differentiated search will become the de facto. It's just a question on when the market takes foot. I think it's, I think that's good advice. I mean, I, you kind of, you kind of slithered through it a little bit, but I think for a lot of the startups there, like don't try to push when you, when you, when there's nothing there. I mean, a lot of the wins that you had were essentially early adopters, people who are looking for something new, looking for something different. And not every conversation is really going to turn into this slam dunk that, oh my God, we have the greatest technology in the world. Sometimes people are just a little bit too scared of it, a little bit, a little bit at a point where you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm not ready to make the change. And, and maybe it takes another six months or it takes another search or it takes another, whatever it is, but we'll get them. Everyone will eventually get there, right? It's the same thing to do with when you think of electric cars or you think of iPhones and smartphones and things like that. Like nobody thought some of this stuff was ever going to eventually be the thing. And now that the transition's happening, it just always takes some time. Totally. Yeah. So find your, find your audience. Yeah. Take the nose gracefully. Yeah. Keep building. Keep going. So when you when you look back, so how, how many how many salespeople or what does your sales team look like today? Yeah, so we probably have close to ten general managers. We focus them regionally and by venture relationships. We've got a CS team of about four or five, and one or two in our partnerships team, and that kind of is our is our. And then we actually have a practice lead model who's focused on more senior search that is in market as well, okay. driving growth and customer relationships. And so they come from more of a traditional recruiting background versus more of a relationship driven sales background. And they're used to carrying a certain quota. And so in, in aggregate, probably around 20 ish. 20 okay. Plus. And so before it was, it was just Nick hmm? carrying his laptop back around and, you know, hopping on the train and doing everything that he can. Still and then do Jeff that. comes around and, and, and now, and now you're at 20 people. What do you think are, Top top two bets that you've made to really accelerate not only the team or maybe just revenue in general. Yeah, yeah. So so one we're making and one we are made, but we're iterating on. So the first is just using our own software to open up referrals for business opportunities. And so we we have a product that we sell to venture growth equity and private equity to aggregate their networks to create value for their portfolio companies. So if you know whoever needs a new VP of marketing, they can shortlist their own relationships. Somebody needs an introduction to the head of corp dev at Salesforce, they can figure out who's the best, best path to connect. And so that's one bet we're not doing is we're building that same product for our team to generate referrals at scale. So really network-based selling. And we've been doing that, but it's been more through an inbound model and others really having a good experience coming inbound. Now we're going to proactively push for introductions for folks who want to meet. And then the second is actually integrating more of a solutions motion or a consultant motion into our sales motion. And so really thinking about how do we pair our search team and our GMs into one sales experience. And so you have this combined effect of like, I can sell differentiation, I can share 
how we're different. I can share our past customer results and I can bring in this awesome search leader who knows the market really now and those comp pools can like help you think through org structure and things of that nature. Yeah. And so, so we are, we have embedded that motion over the last six, 12 months and it's, it's worked really well and, and we're continuing to iterate on it. I like that pods idea. That's interesting. You just kind of pair everybody together and then it's really, really just kind of like expert level. Hey, we can really help you throughout this entire kind of buying journey that Holy you have. When you look back at Nick to 20 people, what would you say is if you if you could take a, a bet back that maybe you were wrong on or did incorrectly or or whatever you want to call it, what 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 would you say? We didn't try it that long, so it was okay. But like we did build a little bit of a, I told you kind of in the second turn of our go-to-market model, like more of an outbound model. And like an outbound model in this space without a relationship just is like pretty ineffective. And so I think I would have rather focused our energy and not doing that and and continuing to iterate our existing model that was working yeah i could see that i mean what where do you think that came from was that just an itch to grow faster was that like outside council vcs whether it's current board members or just you know through all the fundraising that you do is it just do you feel is that from a feeling of pressure that you that you kind of did that or was that where did that come from I think it was an overbelief. It was, this was years ago. It was like four or five years ago. I think it was an overbelief that differentiation could cut through given, you know, the messaging, the timing, the outbound. And what yeah. I think what I believe now is like in this market, in a, in a technology saturated environment, like differentiation without like either the right social proof or the right brand coverage above it, like is really complex to drive through in our space, right? Our space gets attacked by service providers by HR tech, by a wide amalgamation of like different stuff that like, you know, it's hard to really decipher what's real and what's not. And so if you don't have like some of the brand coverage telling the market why it's real or word of mouth yeah. or marketing coverage, it's really hard to make that motion work. And I, so I think, I think there's a place for it now that we're a bit bigger, but I wouldn't bet more than a chip or two on it relative to other kind of tactics. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I can see that. When you think about kind of where you're at today, versus where you were, hmm? what, what, is, what, is, what does it look like for you to be involved in sales today? One of the questions that I often get is, all right, I'm transitioning out of founder-led sales. You put your leadership team into place. To your point, you get to, you get to come in and you do a couple of searches a year to keep your skills sharp. But now you're at a point you've raised $50 million. You got 20, you got 20 people on the team. You obviously got a much bigger team in all the other departments as well. Like how do you, how do you juggle all that while still like actually staying with a with a good sense as far as what's happening on the sales side? Hire great leaders. Like just hire great leaders and other functions. And I think also making sure as a founder you're I know it's a you know C plus answer, but I think it's probably the, the one that everyone gives. Yeah. I think it's hiring great leaders in areas where I don't have domain expertise or ways that I can't like create some sort of unique value and letting them run and giving them vision, resourcing and support. And then the areas where I think it creates some unique value, like still figuring out ways to be a part of the process, whether it's first touch for a certain customer type or we're coming up with unique ideas given having seen the business for so long or having a lot of other customer interactions or search interactions. So I think I can kind of play bridge between our different functions. And so I try and do that and go to market. That makes sense. You mentioned something that you hire great leaders in areas that you're not an expert in. 
-hmm. How do you actually hire a great leader and know that they are a great leader to lead that thing, that department, whatever it is, mm -hmm. if you don't know enough about it? Like, how do you not mishire there? It's really hard. I mean, I think it changes too as you grow. So we're like seven years in this, about 150, 60 people, leaders over all our functions now. And I think the, the thing too is like every stage of business requires perhaps a different profile of leader, as we sort of talked about in the early part of the discussion across all your functions. So I think it's, I think it's recognizing and simplifying like what stage of leader you really need. Do you need a a high-performing IC that can step up in a leadership role because of the maturity of the function? Do you really need a senior person because of the stage of your business, the maturity of your go-to-market model and product market fit? Like, I think it's really doing the hard work of recognizing like, what do you really need from a sizing of leader first? Because I feel like that's where most people screw this up is like they go out and hire a CRO of a billion-dollar company when they don't have product market fit yet. And they walk in and they don't know what to do without resourcing enablement, like sales ops. They don't have like clear archetypes map. They don't have internal recruiting. They don't have inbound driving leads. Like CS doesn't, it doesn't work. And so I think, I think what I'd recommend people do that we really try and do is like, think about the sizing of leader and where they may have come from. And of course there's unicorns that can go up and down, but I find that to be more rare than common given how life changes and what people's personal ambitions change. And so. I think focusing the sizing leader, we do that, do that first and then really do the detailed work of, you know, trusting and working with experts and getting a wide variety of different opinions, whether it's your, you know, hunt club helping you guide you on this or, or other experts in the community that have done this over and over again, have enough conversations that you can at least frame a perspective and, and then go to market having those discussions. So it sharpens that perspective. Love it. It's a good, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Well, before we wrap everything up, I would love to know for the audience, I like to wrap it up with what's a favorite book or a favorite resource as far as you recommend that, I don't know if it's something that you refer to a lot that you recommend often, but like, what, what do you recommend from like a resources or a book point of view to, for the, for everybody listening today? Yeah, I think like HubSpot's content's quite good. They have a ton of like different sales motions, a ton of different thoughts on like, like predictable sales versus relationship-based sales versus tooling. So I love like looking at a bunch of their content and blog posts and, and a lot of their material. And then I, I just love conversations, right? Like go and, and figure out, that's the great thing about the Chicago community, the Midwest entrepreneurial community, like figure out what it is you're trying to solve. I bet you at any given point, there's 10 to 20 people in the city of Chicago that have that experience that are willing to talk to you. And so I think most of my learning comes from, by the nature of our business too, like discussions with people. Yeah. And, uh, and I would always encourage that. So have some things that you can wrap around to create frameworks, but really, you know, talk to people that have lived through it so you can at least get a perspective on yeah. you know, what works and what doesn't. And I, I'd even double click into that. If you don't live in a startup community or a startup city, just reach out. I mean, there's a lot of people in, in, on LinkedIn who are willing to, to take a call with you, do a do a cold email to a CEO or a founder that you really like or recommend and say something interesting and unique that's not cookie cutter. You'd be surprised how many people are like, yeah, let's jump on a call for 30 minutes. That's the key. Make it unique. Too many people are like making it transactional. Like if you send a really thoughtful note about a person, their background, what they've done and match it to what you're trying to do. Like 
and follow up twice, not not just send it once, follow up twice because yeah. sometimes you miss people. Like I, your hit rate's going to be astronomically high. Yeah. Like so, I, I think people forget that as a you know peer to peer consulting as a as a way to do it with others who've been through it, and I think it's the best. I agree. I agree. Last uh, last parting wisdom. Anything that you would recommend or like to share with with the audience before we break? Yeah, I think sort of predicated on like some market conditions now. Like I've seen a lot of people leave a ton of money on the table or a ton of future opportunity because they're getting sucked into a macro condition or a moment in time versus kind of seeing a bit of sort of the, you know, the forest through the trees. And I think it's really important that, you know, as a leader in a company, as if you're a leader in the company, if you're in a business right now, like slow down and really evaluate your environment, slow down and evaluate, really evaluate like product market fit, people you work with. And then, and then make decisions then predicated on that. Like one quick story, we had a person that left a company because they were burnt out four weeks before they were acquired for a billion dollars and they missed, you know, a quarter of their vesting and it was in a leadership role. It was probably worth three to $4 million. Wow. Right. And like they, they were so, you know, caught up up with what's going on in the world with some issues with another leader they're working with, with some dysfunction in the team that like they couldn't slow down and see some of the bigger picture of things were happening. Right. And I've seen that happen now, you know, dozens of times over the years where you know, people don't realize that the startups especially have the ability to change and change fast. Uh, and sometimes they underwrite something when, when you're weeks away from the big outcome. Yeah. I've probably last couple of years, I've never been more convinced to have some type of an outside coach or advisor or confidant or whatever it is, who's kind of been in the space in some form or fashion that you're in. It's just to be able to have that unbiased kind of unfiltered view and, and feedback that, that you would actually trust and listen to, I think is powerful. You know, I think about the Michael Jordans, LeBron James, Brady's and things like they all have coaches. They all have doesn't matter if they're the best of the best, like they still have their trusted people who they listen to. Why, why should that change when you're in business and you're a CFO or a CMO or a VP of this or that? Like why, why are so many people at this, at this like level or really any level in a company just out on an island by themselves? And they're like, okay with that. Like that's just, it's kind of weird to think about when you're like, oh, everybody else does it like in athletics. Why do we not do it in business? So interesting point. Yeah, I think people should make yeah. an investment, like a couple yeah. thousand bucks a year may be a pretty good return on something you're spending eight to 10 hours a day on minimum. Yeah. How does, how does the audience get more of you? Where can they find well, you? Just a huntclub.com. It's got everything that we're doing there. So www.huntclub.com. And then just nick at huntclub.com. If anyone has any questions about talent or thoughts or ideas, like we're always around. There you go. His actual email. I know it because I've emailed him there. So write that down. Hopefully you, you get flooded. I, lo I love it. Nick, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a blast. I have selfishly learned a ton myself, but always great to see you. Thanks. And uh, we'll have to have you on again after you either go public or sell it. And uh, we'll have to have you on for that story too. Sounds good, Alex. Appreciate you having me and always a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.